Hey everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Battle of the Atom. This is your weekly X-Men podcast where we rank every story from A to Z. I'm Adam. And I'm Zach and Adam. Hey, how we doing? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Uh, you know, sometimes it just, you gotta have a good cry. You know, sometimes you just gotta let it all out. And, you know, Adam, sometimes you... Adam. <laughs> yes. <Are> you... <laughs> Adam, are you what? are you saying that we should cry havoc and let sip the dogs yes. of war? Yes, we should cry havoc. <laughs> we should. Hey, speaking of the dogs of war, guess what I got? What'd you get? I got a doggy. I got a puppy. Yeah, that's right. You got a puppy. Everyone, this is Puppy Watch. Uh, I didn't want a puppy, and then my four-year-old said, "Daddy, can we have a puppy?" And he held it in his hands, and oh, yeah. I said. Darn it. <laughs> yeah. We You'll have a little puppy dog for a while. He's little. He's a little dash hound. Uh, his name's Remy. I did not pick out the name. Uh, I just have yet to tell my wife that a trash boy also has that name. Well, uh, I'm assuming it was uh, from Ratatouille. Maybe that's what she picked out. My son, on the other hand, does think that the rat from Ratatouille's name is Ratatouille. And I've had to explain to him several times. <laughs> no, that's a traditional French disc that he serves to Anton Ego that reminds Ego of his childhood and the joys that cooking can bring. Such a great movie. I'm sure there's lots of adults that make that mistake, too. Hey, actually, Ratatouille's the best Pixar movie. It is. And as someone as someone who could be generously described as a critic... Uh, mm-hmm. Several things. Mm-hmm. Deeply and uncomfortably resonant. <laughs> also movie. as a fan of food. I love cooking. I made I made some roasted chicken tonight. It was fine. It's a good one. I didn't get the skin on the other I should have flipped the chicken. I, we uh, roasted it in the oven. Didn't get the skin on the underside crisp enough. But that's what you get. Hey, we're talking about Havoc, not my chicken or my dog, right? <laughs> yes, we're talking about uh, Scott Summers' little brother, Alex, in, in a few very different... Uh, eras here. Where, where we are, are we starting off here? Uh, well, we're going to start off with what was requested by Patreon supporter Alexander Lundquist. Now, Alexander may have had the same strategy that I had when picking my favorite Power Ranger and chose Havoc based on them having similar to the same first names. Mm. I'm just realizing this now, but that might have been what they were doing here. But Alexander, they went on over to patreon.com slash battle of the atom, threw some money our way, and said, y'all, I'd love it if you would talk about uh, this story that is Astonishing X-Men Volume 4, 13 through 17, Until Our Heart Stops. Written by Matthew Rosenberg, with art by Greg Land. Uh, Jay Lyston does his inks, and Frank Diarmada does the colors on this one. I'm gonna say I don't mind the Greg Land as much here. Uh, this is some of the most recent Greg Land that I've seen. Uh, this was I'm September 18, and it, a lot of the Reavers are in this story, so he gets to draw a lot of robot parts, which I think we've agreed in the past he's good at. Right? We have. I would like to. I've made this comment several times in the past, and it was before I read Transformers comics. I now do not want Greg Land to draw Transformers comics <laughs> because I want Transformers comics to continue being good. Because uh, More Than Meets the Eye and The Lost Light are absolutely some of the best comics uh, to come out in the last 10 years. And if you like X-Men and haven't read about these very depressed robots, uh, you should. They are, they are the most X-Men of the Transformers. Uh, and they're good, and I love them. Well, I don't love Greg Land's art on this, though. There are kind of Transformers in this. Um, we should probably get into what this is, because this is not the Charles Soul like first two or excuse me three quarters of this uh, this are series. Talking, are you talking about Charles Soul's twelve issues of nothing except for to say, "Hey, Charles Xavier's back, and he's in Phantom X's body," which not really relevant no apparently not ever apparently not in anything ever (laughs) 
What you guys don't know is that Giant Size Phantom X has come out, and Adam doesn't like it, but I like it. So this is this is an odd one where we both have polarizingly strong feelings in the opposite direction about a story that's completely and utterly unrelated to this one. Unheard this of. one, the Reavers do turn into Sentinel Reavers. They do. That's pretty cool. Um, and Rosenberg, is he's got a fun idea here. It's basically, hey... I want to take uh, Alex Summers and dial up his loserhood, um, which, you know, is is great. I think that's going to pop up a couple times in this episode. He forms his own squad and goes after uh, O-N-E, which... Uh, oh, is... you... Yeah, go ahead. The, the Office of National Emergency, you're talking about that? <laughs> yeah, which we had previously encountered in uh, his New Mutants Dead Souls. Um, so... This is kind of the the third part of his mini like this is not a mini series but it is to a certain extent because it's only a couple issues long and it, it was leads... not pitched as a mini series and I believe Rosenberg talked about it on this very podcast uh, if you go back uh, to the episode where we had him on back in December yeah late December of uh, last year uh, we talked about this a bit. He was, he initially had this pitched as like, this was going to be his ongoing. Like, they're like, Matthew, we've had you on the miniseries. We'd let you do your silly stuff mm-hmm. with with the New Mutants and with Multiple Man. Now we want you to do a real X-Men story. Also, you can only have these X-Men because we already gave the rest to Mark Guggenheim. <laughs> and that is uh, that is definitely true. The, the issue 13 that starts this arc has a... A little insignia on it. First issue of a brand new era. Well, mm, does not last for more than five issues. Again, they wanted this to be a new era. It didn't didn't happen that way. They did want it to be that. Sure. Um, but it's very clear that we are... Um, I mean, it's, it's almost designed to be highlighting, with the exception of maybe Colossus, and, and I don't know if you... Do you think of Beast as an A-lister? I, I sometimes think of I him would, as a, a man in the chair sometimes. but I would consider Hank McCoy to be an A-lister since he was A in the 90s cartoon. That's true. He's and 05. B in like five different X-Men movies. <laughs> Beast, is, Beast is there in every adaptation except for Pride of the X-Men, I think. Oh, that's true. If I'm if I'm thinking, Beast is in all of them at some point. Yeah, um, uh, I guess Legion and Gifted, but those, 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 those are like this this size of X Men, very small X Men content in yes. those. Well, this is, the gimmick behind this is that Alex is is a, is a dork. He's a loser. Uh, he's messing things up for the Avengers, and he has to put together this this little side quest team um, that he's not even allowed to call the X Men because Kitty Pride owns the trademark to that. Um, and uh, Jimmy Proudstar, Warpath, is very adamant about making sure that he knows that he's not allowed to call these people the X-Men. <laughs> That's right. Um, so we have Colossus here, who's not dealing well uh, with the uh, fallout of his failed marriage to Kitty Pride. We have... Bud, you had to take the L for all of us on that one, Gator. <laughs> I'm sorry. But it would be untenable yeah, for that you would... and Kitty to be married now uh we have dazzler um who i guess is wearing a blonde wig throughout this story um, yeah dazzler un- dazzler unfortunately doesn't get a ton to do in this one cool, I, cool I, I power think set right i mean she cool at one power point set gets uses to do like a lot hologram of powers stuff. right she gets to do a lot of fun stuff i think rosenberg like he gets her voice mm-hmm. but this story is not set up to give her a plot and that's that's true i think of beast of banshee who shows up in this yes Uh, we get zombie banshee back from the dead uh i guess beast was just fooling around and decided to (laughs) reanimate him at harvard (laughs) he was in a no he was in a coma after uncanny avengers when he had the death right right right. uh he was in a coma it's fine He, he gets better he doesn't see eventually all that, all that with it they have to use a remote control to uh to bring him around 
<laughs> to kick butt. Again, there's a lot in this in this arc that tells you it wasn't supposed to be a tight five. Oh no, no. I mean he's seeding some some pretty long term things here. Um but it has to get wrapped up real quick. Yeah, and that's uh that's unfortunate for this book. What what I like about it, I like Rosenberg's voice on this. Mm-hmm. I think that he does a good job. His havoc his havoc almost feels like uh very similar to his Hawkeye and Hawkeye Freefall, which was a really good comic that unfortunately got short cut short due to the Rona, which by the way, we're still in the quarantine times. I realized we had forgot to like give that disclaimer because this is just what normal is now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when it started, we talked about it on every episode and now it's kind of just like, well, this is life forever, you know? Yeah, this is, this is forever guys. Uh. Um, no, that's a different Rosenberg story and one with more elements that aren't great. Um, <laughs> This one this one has a lot of good in it. I like the character voices. I think the plot's a little little slight. It it really does feel like five issues of setting up this team and then oops the book didn't get picked up for issue 6. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you even get it on the last page the 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 last line of this is uh is Warpath like saying, "I'll follow him anywhere." You know, it's like Okay, well, clearly you were supposed to follow him on more adventures, and that he is was. not going to happen. Unfortunately, he had to uh, he had to follow Baby Cable, uh, right? To X Force, <laughs> yeah, because all is, of the books got changed. Yeah, this is right on uh, the heels of extermination, um, or, or right before extermination, and then yes, you know, the first issue is in fact a countdown to extermination. Oh boy, that didn't make any sense. Those none of those little <laughs> vignettes made any sense they didn't no um so yeah we set up the team then the team breaks up in the middle they fight some pretty dope uh reaver sentinels that's in some kind of fun and novel ways uh there's a little cameo of the the uh, new mutants dead souls uh guys infected with technarchy so you know you could tell that that rosenberg had longer plans here but um you know it wasn't meant to be it wasn't, and we could, we could talk at length about how scheduling threw off his entire era of X Men because mm-hmm. it starts with them needing a fill in person for Phoenix Resurrection, and ends with, hey, we need a hey Matt Maddie, we need a we need a fill in person for uh, the next few months until Hickman's ready, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, can you and, do that? Um, it's, it's there's some there's some challenges with it's that. It's a thankless task in many ways. Um so yeah, I I I enjoyed this. I like Rosenberg's writing. I think I'm on the record saying that. Um I think this is more fun than some of the stuff we see in his uh his uncanny run after this. Right, cuz it's not just it's not not just soul crushing the entire time at best and very problematic at worst. It's got it's this has jokes. It's fun. Um, I know it's playing to his strengths. Honestly, yes, I, absolutely. I wish absolutely. the art was better. I just like I'm not going to harp on Greg Land because we all know what we're getting into. But this is a Greg Land comic, and there's a there's a ceiling. There's a low ceiling to that. I you know what if if I can give him some credit, he seems to be improving in certain areas. There are definitely like certain panels with uh, teeth that are just way too big for a human being. He's big on giant chompers Um, and (laughs) it's, it's weird, but um, I I don't think he's nearly as bad here as he was, uh, you know, on his original X-Men run. Um, But, you know, I I don't see Greg Land coming back to X books in in the future, near future. Don't you, don't don't you jinx it. (laughs) Let him and Peter David stay into a little friggin' corner doing Uh, nostalgia stories for 80s Spider-Man that no one really cares about. Let them do that. Yeah. So we're, they um, can't hurt us. I will say, despite our mixed feelings about this uh, particular story, this is a monumental one for the show. Is it not? It is, guys. We are no longer on the road to 400. We are at the <laughs> 400th story we've ranked on this show. That's so many stories. Wow. 
That's crazy. Uh, as so, as Adam uh, implied, we rank all of our stories uh, from all of X-Men. Uh, the number one story on our list is the Dark Phoenix Saga. Number 100 is the X-Men in Life Lessons, uh, mm. which, which is a PSA comic. Good for that one, yeah. staying in the top 100 that long. <laughs> uh, it's a good one. Number two, it, it no, it's not, it's not going to stay in the top 100 for the whole episode. Uh, not with this one. This one, it's better than, I think. Uh, number 200 is The Invisible Woman Has Vanished from X-Factor. Number 300 is X-Force and Cable Annual 1995. That's when they go to the beach. And number 399 is The Draco, which is bad. Hey, oh, Adam. Yeah. This doesn't break our top 100. No. No. Um, um, it's, it's the worst It's the worst uh, Rosenberg comic we've ranked. It is. And I honestly think that we're probably looking at a book that's going to be in the 200s here. Um I think it's worse than 209, the Madrox miniseries that kicks off X-Factor. I agree. Um, I think it is better than 220, which is New Mutants Truth or Death. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, okay. actually, yes, I agree. We are in the right, we're in the right spot. Yeah. Um, I think at 211, we've got Champions number 12, which is that Cyclops-focused issue. Mm-hmm. And I like that one better than this. Yeah. Um, I think I like 215, X-Men Black Mojo number one better as well. Uh, I think I like X-Men 300 better as well. Do you like a song of mourning or cry of joy? Uh, X-Men volume two, number 27. I mean, I'm kind of ambivalent, uh, but I think this is better than XL at 219. So I think it's, it's better than X Nation at 218 or Nation. There X, we go. Excuse me. Because Nation so this X is going to be. Long. Yeah, this is going to be our new 218. Yeah, I'm thinking back. I'd rather read uh, X Men 27. That's the one with Threnody in it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's an interesting issue. Yeah, I don't know how good back. it is, but it's interesting. All right. Oh. It's it's back when the legacy virus was still kind of novel, you know. Oh, they should have done they should have done what uh, what Rosenberg did uh, in his run when there was a mutant virus vaccine thing, which was uh, have a have a zombie zombie banshee leave chemtrails that would unvaccinate your kids. Oh my god! Oh boy, that sure is a story. Um, I think. Well, look, I think that's funny as heck. Uh, vaccinate your children, people. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Come on. Yeah. Let's talk I mean, about the, the next story, do, right? We should. Oh my God! This is. Oh, I'm excited to talk about this next one. What is this? Uh, the next story we're going to talk about is Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown Number One, written by the Simonsons, Walter and Louise, uh, with pencils and inks and colors by John J. Muth. And Kent Williams. Yeah. Uh, John J. Muth does Havoc and Kent Williams does Wolverine. Kind of wild, right? Like a very interesting approach. We've got, uh, we've got both of um, our Simonson buddies here. And, and uh, I don't think Wheezy listens to this show, but congratulations. Um, She just was inducted into the Eisner Hall of Fame uh, this year, which is great. Yeah. Eisner Hall of Fame nominee, uh, Eisner Hall of Fame inductee, and number one in our hearts, Louise Simonson. (laughs) Um, But what an interesting idea to have two separate, almost fine art painters here. Um, You know, we're we're talking like acrylic on canvas here. We're not talking anything that could be done digitally. And yet we're mixing these two artists together and making a really, really strong visual impression here. Yeah. Let's start with talking about the art here because that really is the spotlight. This was an epic comics yes. uh, book. It's perfect bound. They're a little bit longer. Uh, it's four issue miniseries about Wolverine and Havoc going to Mexico uh, after after aliens invaded uh, after aliens invaded Australia and they made a goof about going to Mexico. They go to Mexico. Um, and get into some hijinks, and it's beautifully painted. I mean, yeah, you got two it, very 
impressionistic artists who are going off here. Uh, John J. Muth is a lot more, uh, like, uses a lot of, like, bright reflections and a lot of light and a lot of just, like, like heavy brush work on there. It it's almost like it's almost like Monet inspired, and that's the only painter I know. Uh, but it's got like those little little brushy dots yes. all through it. Yeah, I wouldn't uh, be super surprised if uh, you know he wasn't maybe incorporating even some spray paint into what it is that he's doing. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's a really interesting contrast. Whereas the the, the Kent Williams stuff is much more like sludgy <laughs> you know it like is, it's kent williams in this gives me more of a bill sinkevich vibe because yes. you can see like he's doing he's doing some pencils under it mm-hmm. uh but he's using he's using that to give some structure which he then breaks with the paint he like has it pop has the paint pop out of those lines and like runs through it and adds this chaos to the Wolverine. And there's so much fluidity in both of these artists. It's, it's shocking how well they fit together because they have similar styles, but unlike when you have like two artists today who like do traditional pencils or who do uh, like digital, digital work. And even when they have the same colorists, Mm -hmm. you can, you can tell that there is a like clean differentiation, but I think because everything in this book is off model by design. Well, yeah. <laughs> it feels easier. And that's an, like it feels like they mesh better. That's important to note. Like uh Havoc is specifically painted to look like James Dean throughout the Oh, he's all four just books. James Dean. Like there is no questioning that whatsoever. And Wolverine is this is a brand new take on the character that I don't think had ever been attempted where he has, you know, sort of these antenna like Wolverine hair spikes that they don't, they don't spike. They, they droop, they, they flow, you know, it's, it's a, it's like Wolverine had not gotten his haircut in a while. He's got a quarantine cut in this one. (laughs) I believe the next issue of uncanny X-Men chronologically after this there is a scene where Wolverine's doing his hair and he does his hair like that and yeah. laughs at it yeah. and changes it back. It's very good. Uh, Cause this is, this is a, this is interesting. I think it all works because this is this like noir book that starts like in a hot Mexican summer at a bar while these guys are having a fight. Uh, well, and everything goes wild. If I may, though, I mean, we're we're starting almost half of the first issue, not with the, the Mexican bar fight scene, but with an explanation of the meltdown at Chernobyl and how apparently there was some sort of like secret, uh, you know, <laughs> messing around that caused that. Uh, because behind the scenes of this entire story, we have, uh, Dr. Neutron and the title character meltdown, uh, general meltdown. Yes. Yeah. Who are kind of the, I guess, uh, what would you say is their master plot to conspire to, to melt down another reactor to like extend the cold war? Uh, what, what, what is their ultimate goal? I think they just want meltdown, uh, general meltdown, to have a lot of powers because he can he uh, can absorb uh, radioactive energy, right? And he absorbed a bunch with Chernobyl, and he wants more. So they set up this plot uh, to get him a lot of energy because you know who uh, who can go a little nuclear sometimes. I think you might be referring to the character we're exploring this episode. <laughs> We are talking about Havoc. And here's the thing about Havoc. He's dumb as heck. He's a dum-dum. He is a dum-dum. Like, we are not that far off of the heels of Inferno, and he is falling very easily for very easily dispelled uh, lies being told to him by a hot redhead. It is true. That's Scarlet Mackenzie, a.k.a. Quark. Yep. Uh, It's fun. Havoc narrates his parts like he is the protagonist in a noir story, which has a but it has like this delicious bite of irony because the reader's aware, like from page 
the first time she shows up, oh, she's bad and she's manipulating him. Yeah. But you get Havoc, who's just like living it. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm flying this biplane with a hot chick and I'm going to go save my friend Wolverine because they told me Wolverine was dead. But I know Wolverine's not dead and I'm going to go help him because <laughs> Wolverine would survive the bubonic plague. I don't think either of them had the bubonic plague, Adam. I don't know. I mean, they, they do indicate that Wolverine was shot with these bubonic plague bullets. I don't think they shot Alex with them, but uh, who knows? It doesn't matter. They they did go as far as to uh, put a sandbag in um, Alex Summers' fake grave, which why that would fool Wolverine is beyond me. Um, yeah, I don't understand. Uh, their whole plan is not great. No. But it's real pretty to watch. It is. And what's cool about this is that it is, um, like you said, it's this noir story, but it's punctuated with these action scenes that are really, really fluid. And it it gets to this boiling point where, like you said, Havoc is going up against Meltdown with Wolverine. Um, and it just gets very expressionistic. You know, to the point where when we finally have all of this energy released, it like sort of shoots into space as this like giant red and green paint splatter. It's it's really cool. It's unlike anything it's, else in X-Canon, I think. It, it truly is. It stands alone and it's gorgeous yeah. to look at. Maybe the closest. And it's it's you not can... just pretty. It has like a compelling story yeah. that drives you forward and keeps you wanting to turn the page. And it's great. And it's honestly, I think it's some of uh, Louise Simonson's best work. Sure. Uh, however, however, the Simonsons are overshadowed by some world-class unique art in this and that really helps it stay memorable because it it feels like this grimy late cold war story yes. that it is uh-huh. and it still also feels like an x-men story like this feels like a wolverine story yeah and it's just it's, it's, it's got good both. and it's fun i think if i was going to compare it to something i i you know art wise you probably want to compare it to something like sinkevich but i think a closer mm-hmm. comparison would probably be jungle adventure where yes walt simonson is kind of pitching this concept to a very very talented artist and and letting them kind of take it and go with it um mm-hmm. and I, it's I it's a high-concept X-Men story. Yeah, and I admire the way this is put together. Like, this is 1988. We're not talking about, like, incredibly sophisticated digital editing or anything like that. It didn't exist. And yet, you can clearly tell that these, you know, paintings, be them watercolor. I, I'm not sure if there's there's acrylic painting in here or not. But you, you can tell that certain artists' work is being, like, cropped into panels and placed onto the page. It, it's mm-hmm. pretty meticulously edited as well. Yeah, hey, this one rules. It really does. It's good. And it I, really I does. suspect that uh, this was the book that you were talking about getting into the top 100. Yeah, it's this one that I think will make the top 100. I reorganized my whole comics collection because I was looking for these. And then I read <laughs> them and I was like, all right, no, it was all worth it because these, these own. I panicked uh, because I couldn't find them on my bookshelf. And then I was like, oh, right. I have too many Wolverine one shots. I have to put them in a long box. And there they were in all their there glory. There they were. In all their beauty. Um, all right. Where's it going? So at 71, we have Asgard Shi'ar War. I think this is better than Asgard Shi'ar War. I agree. I would go higher. Um, I'm looking I'm looking higher. Number 50 right now is Rogue and Gambit by Kelly Thompson and Perry Perez. And I like this better than Rogue and Gambit. I do too. Um, it's interesting. We have Marvel's 2 at 42 on the list. And I think I like this better than that. I think this is better than Marvel's 2, uh, which is a interestingly comparable i like this better than number 34 x-men grand design i agree um where it's is not our ceiling here it's not as good as and this is just popping out to me number 28 what if magic yeah, I, I don't uh, think it goes that high. I think where we're comparable with here is like at 31, we have the first three issues of Gen X, which is like, you know, Chris Bocciolo, like genius time. Um, and right above that, we have the first life death. But I can see. I don't know. I'm trying to think of, of 
I, we're definitely in the right area. Like, I, I don't think it would, I would go say, higher than this where we're at here. I think you're absolutely right. I'd say right above uh, Generation X 1 through 3, right below Life Death. Love it. I think that's a great place. Wow. That's a very high ranking. We haven't had a ranking. That's number that 31. Guys, this comic's good. <laughs> oh, man. Seriously, if you've never, and it's not on Unlimited, unfortunately, but I feel like it this used is the, to be, I swear it used to be. Even if it was, this is the kind of book that like, I feel like there are certain things um, that there were risks being taken with publishing at certain points that I don't think Marvel would do a book like this now. Um, and I just, I think it's absolutely gorgeous. I, I think it's worth like, tracking down the four like prestige format. Um uh, graphic novels and and checking it out it's it's beautiful it absolutely is uh now we're gonna shift gears yep um we're gonna shift gears and go to the silver age to havoc's first appearance hmm. in a story that's actually two stories that i got to the end of the first one and said well this isn't actually how it ends <laughs> it keeps going dang it we have to we have to go deeper well and it's a uh, it's this, good that it does because this is going to be an interesting uh contrast between these two two stories Yes, uh, this it starts with X-Men 54, goes through 59. Uh, there's a there's a laundry list of creative teams, and it changes on here because there's also backups and everything. So, this is Arnold Drake, Don Heck, and Vinnie Coletta. Uh, Werner Roth does some pencils. Roy Thomas switches to be the writer on the uh, 55. Uh, Roth and Heck and Coletta uh, still on that. And then by 56, Roy Thomas is on it. Neil Adams is doing the pencils, mm. uh, which changes a lot Huge. here. Actually, we're going to talk about that's that. A, that makes a big difference. Werner Roth is still doing the backups. Uh, and then you get a backup. That is the first time a woman has ever written X-Men, mm -hmm. uh, which is Linda fight who wrote, a backup about Jean Grey. Fun story about Linda Fight. Uh, she was just like Herb Trimpey's wife and wrote a few issues of The Cat and hmm. Night Nurse. Cool. And that's about it. Well, hey, that's 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 better portfolio than uh, we could ask for from uh, Marvel women writers of the 60s. So, <laughs> um, listen. Good for her. Listen. She helped co-create uh, Tigra. Yeah. With Marie Severin, so she's got that going sure. for her. Sure. She's, she's good stuff. Um, the first half of this story is um, the uh, the living pharaoh and and the introduction of Al Scott Summers' crazy little brother, Alex. <laughs> oh, you mean his secret brother he didn't tell anybody about? And he said, by the way, I have a brother and he's graduating from college right now and we all have to go visit him. <laughs> <laughs> at which point he is then abducted by silly white men uh in red and white candy cane pharaoh garb <laughs> literally one page one page later in havoc is abducted and he's gone for three issues <laughs> uh yes and i talk to me about the geography here because in the later parts of this story it becomes apparent that we we have moved from new york to Egypt, I guess. Egypt. Yep. Right. General generic Egypt. Yeah, it's not. It's not very clear. Um, Let's call it Cairo and move on from there. It, it comes up later because because Angel is going to attempt a uh, cross Atlantic flight on his wings because he can't wait uh, to just wait for the jet to show up. But um, yeah, the first half of this is just like, okay, Alex is laying on a table and they're they're going after the living pharaoh. Who turns to stone? Yeah, uh, the living pharaoh is bad. He turns into the living monolith when he absorbs Alex's powers. And people have done several stories about Alex and the living pharaoh and they aren't good. And we can just, we can just leave Amat Abdul in the sands of time of X-Men. Yeah, he can okay be like Ozymandias. So uh, you're saying that he shouldn't be a pivotal character in, let's say, uh, X Men the Twelve. <laughs> yeah, probably shouldn't be the probably shouldn't be a pivotal character in the Twelve. Yeah, no. Well, what um, should be a, a a very big point 
about this particular arc, though, is that uh, the third issue does have the premiere of um, of Neil Adams, which yeah, he had he had been doing some covers, uh, but he does interiors here for the first time, and he's Neil Adams. Oh my god! Like what a shift! It's crazy. Like you feel like you've just gotten into a time machine. Uh, there's anatomy. There's uh, dynamic. I, I realize he's not inking his own stuff. Tom Palmer is here, but there's a very dynamic use of light. There's backgrounds that make sense. There's perspective. Uh, there's incredible layouts. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. Um, guys, I, if you yeah, go ahead, if you only know Neil Adams uh, from his cashing a paycheck work that he's been doing for the last, let's be generous and say, fifteen years. Um, and good for Neil. Mm-hmm. Neil, get that money. Enjoy your bad Fantastic Four comic with your weird-looking the thing Jesus. that's coming out. That oh sure man, is I'm look. not looking forward to Fantastic Four antithesis. Uh, it it is the antithesis of my excitement, uh, which is great. Is <laughs> a Mark Wade, uh, old Neil Adams Fantastic Four story with ugly Ben Graham. Uh, go look that up when you guys get a chance. It's a bad Ben Graham. Oof, it's it's rough, but. This is not. This looks, no. This one's good. This looks so good. Like it, you know, when you're used to the Silver Age being this very flat uh, environment, to see perspective, to see dynamic panel layouts, um, it's crazy fun. To it's just it, it even kind of overshadows the fact that Roy Thomas is writing this story, and it's just kind of like, all right, um, yeah. Um, here's the thing. We all know how in 1970 X-Men got put into reprints. Yes. Uh, Roy Thomas has later said since he was EIC at the time or was about to be or whatever, he was close enough to the situation that, uh, by the time they put Neil on the books, because newsstand sales lagged so long. Mm-hmm. They didn't get any of the feedback that, Hey, actually X-Men's selling really good now. That's wild. Like, so the book wasn't a, doing as poorly as they thought it was. It was it was doing exactly as poorly as they thought it was. But then it got better? I see. By a lot? Yes. But but it was already like the data they were coming back because it was lagging so much was showing that it was bad, which is a wild what if to think. What if this doesn't get canceled in Neil Adams like just draws X-Men for a couple of years. I'd be on board for that. Uh, heck of a lot better than John Byrne hidden years. That's for sure. <laughs> Jeez, it would be a heck of a lot better than John Byrne's the hidden years. <sighs> um, but what's great about this is that we don't linger on uh, the living Pharaoh living monolith for very long because the much more fun half of this story, which I enjoyed quite a bit is we get introduced to Larry Trask and the return of the Sentinels. Yeah, uh, Larry wants to follow up his father's dark work uh, and bring back the Sentinels. Uh, Judge Chalmers does think that this might not be a great idea uh, because, you know, Larry secretly is a mutant uh, and has a has a, <laughs> has a mutant-protecting <laughs> necklace that he right. does take off because right. uh, he's very mad about things. I gotta love that. Don't ever take this necklace off. So this guy, this poor kid has been like showering with this thing on never nude for, uh, you know, like his entire adult life. And then the second he takes it off, a sentinel tries to kill him. I feel like, I feel like it was important for him to be wearing that during the moments when his father made the sentinels and then he was probably good. <laughs> And then immediately afterwards, when he remade the Sentinels, then he did take it off and it was the worst possible time. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And he immediately gets snatched up. We also learned that uh, the Magneto of a past story was a robot (laughs) in a, in a quick little scene. (laughs) That's, that's very much a quick uh, Roy Thomas retcon. Cause he's like, wait, no, I have a better Magneto story that I'm about to tell. And right. it's going to be dumb if he was a robot hanging out with Mastermind. Yep. Uh, this is also, I mean, talk about spectacular page layouts. This is also the story that does end with 
the Sentinels being convinced that because the source of energy for Alex's powers is the sun, they have to go to the sun. <laughs> yeah, it's the source of all mutation. And that right. is Chris Claremont's first credited comics work. Uh, first, first on the X-Men. It involves Scott dressing up as Quicksilver in his uh, green uniform. Jean's pretending to be Wanda to, to psych out the, the Sentinels so that they don't realize who they are. It's just, I don't know. Like, this is what you would want your Silver Age comics to be. However, Scott does unfortunately utter uh, a very um, unfortunate racial slur at some point, which is still in the comic, which I realize, you know, I don't want them to change anything for historical purposes, but um, it's a, not a good look, Scott. <laughs> hey, hey, maybe don't do slurs, guys, uh, in our X-Men. Yep. Uh, please don't do that. Yeah. Beyond that, which is bad. <laughs> But the second half of the story is much, much stronger than the first half. It has like a real plot, and yeah. like it's got that it's got the good havoc design, the one with his stupid hat. And Neil Adams decides, hey, let's just make let's just draw circles whenever he does his powers, <laughs> and they're two D flat circles. And they, you remember how they tried to do that in X Men First Class, and they gave him hula on hoops. fire hula hoops. Yeah, that was a bad idea. That's just not that's stupid. Like, just go with what it actually looks like. Yeah, guys, just put just put two dimensional circles parallel with the page as the reader's looking at it in a way that does not make any physical sense. Don't skew the circles. Don't do any nope. perspective. Put flat ass three hundred sixty <laughs> degree circles across his laser beam. That's right. And that's all you need because it, it looks good every time. It sure does. Uh, hey, just put the pencils. You don't have to ink it that high. You're Artists asking a ink lot. It, ink it real small. You're asking a lot from a movie that had uh, Sebastian Shaw played by Kevin Bacon and let Darwin like eat something and die. So, um, okay. See that scene. I'm going to get a lot of flack for this. Hold on. <laughs> oh no. You're going to defend it. <laughs> no. Okay. Here, go ahead. I'm not, but I never cared that much because I never liked Darwin. Cause he's from deadly Genesis Oof. and poor Darwin. Listen, I was like, well, look, that's what you get for being in a crappy story, Darwin. I don't know what to tell you. You, sh- you shouldn't have been in a bad story. I You've bet. finally gotten to be a good one now because I just read uh, the Hickman X-Men number five when him and Sink. I was going to say, we're going to like him when he comes into, out of that go vault. Go into a hole. We're going to like him when oh, he comes man. out of that vault. I'm so excited for them to come out of that vault. It's been 538 years. In the year 2022, we will find out. Um, playing the long game. I like this. Um, this is what I want my Silver I, Age X-Men to look like. It's not great, but it is fun. And it looks... I like the good parts. Yeah. But there's the first half of this, which is bad. It's only two issues. And it doesn't It's three. It doesn't have its, it's act It's three together. and three, my dear. All right, all right. It's three and three. Ugh. And the best part about it is of uh, the first half is that one uh, Neil Adams cover that they later uh, use for Dark Phoenix Saga mm. with yeah. the living monolith. He's grabbing the logo. You've seen it. Even if you don't know what we're talking about. Imagine the Dark Phoenix one where Phoenix is grabbing the uh, logo. Yep. And it's that, just uh, but older. Yeah. Also, the backups are fine. There's nothing about them, right? They're not great. Um, and, you know, as, as... it's Angel's secret origin. Yeah, I mean, Jean's story, I, hey, kudos for there being a female author, but it does end with, like, yay, I get to be glared at by men. <laughs> like, that's the final panel, and I'm like, oh, no. Each of, each of the X-Men got, like, a one-issue short that was like, I'm going to break the fourth wall and talk directly to the audience about this is me and my powers and my deal. Right. So... It's unique to Gene here. It also sucks and is boring. Yeah. And it's basically like, I'm a lady. And it's like, uh, okay, can we get... Can we but get not some? like in a good way, like that Kesha song that plays at the end of uh, <laughs> Birds of Prey. Oh, I like that song. Um, no. It's a good song. Not... It's going to be stuck in my head. And no. that's a weird song for me, a man with a large beard, to be singing. Well, hey, man, you be you. Uh, no judgment. Look, I crank the Kesha. I, I am me. 
I will be me, but I'm not going to just blare, I'm a mother-loving woman, uh, <laughs> uh, out my car I, stereo. I have. I, I don't feel bad about it at all. It's a great song. Um, <laughs> look, at, look at Adam being very secure with himself. <laughs> this is good. I like this. This isn't a top 100 story, though. No, 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 no. Um, I mean, it, it's it's obviously a huge improvement on on other Silver Age stories that we've done on the show. So I, I think we're yeah, probably... Yeah, I'm looking for some Silver Age. What's that? I'm looking for some Silver Age. At 248 on our list, we have the first issue of X-Men, and this is better than that. Absolutely. Um, but I don't think we're cracking above 200 which is the X-Men annual oh, number no. one from 2007. Like, we're definitely in the 200s here. How do you feel about this compared to A plus X number five, uh, the Iron Fist and Dupe and Loki and Sinister story? I like it better. I, I think that it it's interesting. and the, the Even addition the bad of, parts? Even the bad... I mean, the bad parts are just, like, kind of Silver Age silly, but the introduction of Neil Adams is, is a real draw. I, I, I think it's kind of monumental in its own way. I think okay, we're on par have, with like 238, which is the submergence of Japan, X-Men 118 to 119, like kind of a, uh, not like the introduction, the introduction of uh, Alex is obviously important, but like we're on a similar storytelling quality here, right? I would say that uh, the submergence of Japan is better. Okay. Like to me, that's the, that's the, that's the ceiling. Mm-hmm. But I could I, I could put this uh, up ahead of what happened to Cassidy Keep, which is Gen X eight eight and nine. Then this is the new two thirty nine. It's the first Great. appearance of Havoc, and the second appearance of the Sentinels. Go check that one out, guys. It's it's a mixed bag, but it's um it's really cool. It's got some good stuff. Just in it. just start with the Sentinel part. Havoc gets captured. That's it. Yeah. It doesn't matter. imagine him in a little loincloth and. and He does. Okay, so if you do like himbo (laughs) content, um, let's see. He is kind. He doesn't say very much, but he is kind. He is smart Mm -hmm. uh, because he graduated. No, well, he's smart. He's not. He's smart, but he's dumb is the thing about Havoc. (laughs) He is an intelligent person who does very dumb things. It's like him and Captain Britain, uh, and I do mean uh, Brian Braddock, not his sister, who's both smart and like intelligent. Yes. Whereas Brian Brian is dumb, uh, but he is also a theoretical physicist. <laughs> He's like, uh, what? What was her name from uh, the one uh, James Bond movie? I don't know if it was Tomorrow Never Dies or The World Is Not Enough, where uh, what's her name plays a. Uh, we're talking about Miss Money something Penny, Christmas. Or what are we talking about here? No, no. The one that's a physicist or something. Been a while since I've seen my old school James Bond, so I'm not sure. No, this isn't even old school. This is uh this is nineties. This is Daniel Craig or Pierce Brosnan? This is Brosnan Bond. What am All I right. thinking? People are gonna get mad at me for this. Let's see, uh Halle Berry? No, no, she was in uh Die Another Day. Who are Brosnan's Bond ladies. It's uh it's not Michelle Yao. No, that's uh the world is not enough. Jane Seymour? Oh man. I don't think so. No, uh it's the world is not enough is the one I'm thinking of. It has Denise Richards oh. uh playing Dr. Christmas Jones, an yes. American nuclear physicist. I do remember that, yes. <laughs> Oh, the 90s. Uh, boy. Listen, that are the Pierce Brosnan Bond movies traditionally good? I'd say Gold, Golden Eye is, and they're, not just because of the video game. They're very silly. Um, they're very silly. They, they are very <laughs> silly. Um, yeah. I don't even know how to... Yeah, because... Yeah, Golden Eye, Tomorrow Never Dies, World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day. Those are, those are the Brosnan ones. I knew that. I think the first two were okay. If I remember Tomorrow Never Dies is the one with Michelle Yao. Yeah, I remember that one having some fun stuff in it. But once we get to yeah, Dr. Christmas Jones, I was like, um, 
Okay. Yeah, that's the one where that's the one where Rupert Murdoch tries to take over the world, I think. <laughs> and then Die Another Day is very dumb. It does have a guy with diamonds stuck in his face. Yes. Yes. Uh, anyway, we've already ranked it, right? Like, we can just be done? We can. Uh, that was a lot of good Havoc content. Um, so who do we have to thank again? Uh, Alexander Lundquist. He's our Patreon supporter of the week. If you want to be like Alexander, you can go over to patreon.com slash battle of the atom. And throw a couple of bucks our way. We've got some really exciting stuff that's coming up soon. Uh, a lot of it supported by our patrons. In fact, there's a story that's coming up that I guess I wouldn't have reread uh, anytime recently, but I'm excited to reread it now, mm-hmm. which is odd. Uh, there, there's a bunch of fun things coming. Actually, uh, we're going to take a break from Patreons for a couple of weeks, and we'll tell you why. Uh, but Adam, where can people find you online Got if it. they want to find your goods and services? Guys, you can always follow me on Twitter at Arthur Stacy. I'm at Xavier Files. Yeah. It's the name of the website. <laughs> the podcast is hosted there. We talk about comics. Uh, you can get mad at our rankings from the Dawn of X X-Men books, which I posted and immediately hit mute this thread. Uh, said, not listening to it. I said you didn't. you weren't allowed to argue. And so many... So many of you still argued, and I'm not going to name names. Arguing the results they... of a democratic election, folks. Just there were t- there were twenty of us. <laughs> we all made decisions, and we unanimously said Fallen Angels was bad. <laughs> Sorry, it's if you don't if you liked it, I'm glad you liked it. I I'm I'm glad you did like it. You would have been the you know first out of twenty one people. Yes. Uh, Yes. Pulled by our scientists. Yes. The very good scientists at Xavier Files. Uh, scientists like Brian Braddock and uh, Alexander Summers. <laughs> um, I forget where I was going with this. Uh, maybe maybe uh, we, we need someone to help us out, like, to edit this. Maybe we should say, bring on an editor for next we do, week. We, should, we need an expert. Who, who should we bring on? Uh, we've got X-Men editor Annalise Bisa, who's going to be joining us next week uh, to talk about the X-Men. And... House of X, Powers of Ten, Ten of Sorts, maybe Fallen Angels, who knows? Who knows? She did not edit that book, and I don't really <laughs> care about asking questions about it. I think we'll stick to uh, to the to the prime cuts. Uh, we, <laughs> no, we're going to stick to the prime cutting <laughs> units and cutting tools, i.e. swords. There you go. We're going to, guys, we're going to ask her what her favorite sword is. We're going to ask her all about her favorite swords. And which ones she thinks the X-Men would best have. Uh, but that's going to be next week. Until then, guys, this has been Bal the Atom. We hope you survived the experience. Get it!